turn in your copy of God's Word to the book of Hebrews. If you're following along in one of their pew Bibles, it is on page 1061. There, it will be on the screen behind me. And we're going to jump in. We gave that little overview for the book of Hebrews because that's where we're going to be for the next several, several weeks. As we look through this series, Jesus is better. And the reason we're doing that is is what was basically echoed in that, that summary video. That we want to show why Jesus is better and what foundation we have for believing that. What foundation and hope that we have for making that profession. That it's not simply a cultural thing. It's not simply a Baptist thing. It's not simply a family lineage type thing. It is a biblically founded great hope and assurance that we have. And we also want to show that Jesus is greater because then it prepares our hearts to say, why would I risk, why would I look and, and be foolish to wander away from such a great hope and a foundation I have in Christ? So today we're going to read chapter 1. Uh, we are going to be looking at verses 4 through 15 in particular, I mean 4 through 14 in particular, but we're going to read the whole chapter because it all flows together, it all ties together for its purpose. So would you stand with me in the honor of reading God's Word, whether you have it in printed or digital. And if you want to use one of those Bibles and take it home uh, and it be yours, it's our gift to you. But here is the Word of the Lord in the book of Hebrews. Long ago, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. God has appointed Him heir of all things and made the universe through him the sun is the radiance of god's glory and the exact expression of his nature sustaining all things by his powerful word after making purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high so he became superior to the angels just as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. Again, when he brings his firstborn into the world, he says, and let all God's angels worship him. About the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his servants a fiery flame. But to the Son, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of justice. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy beyond your companions. And in the beginning... Lord, you established the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like clothing and you will roll them up like a cloak and they will be changed like clothing, but you are the same and your years will never end. Now, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve those who are going to inherit salvation? Let's pray. 
Lord God, this is your word. May you use it as you see fit. May you draw us to you by the proclamation of it. And may you grow us richly by rooting us deep in in who you are and by growing us to produce that which you want us to produce. For those that need to know you and take those steps with you, I pray you would pierce their heart with the power of your word and the moving of your spirit today. In Jesus' name, amen. may be seated. So we're in this section of the book of Hebrews, and and anytime you get into a Bible book, anytime you open the Bible to study it, obviously you're studying something to gain something from it. That's generally why we pick up a book and read it. We're like, okay, I want to know what the story is. I want to know what the plot twist is. I want to know what the history is. I want to know what the facts are. I want to know what the theories are. I want to know what the, the methods and the case studies show. We're looking to see what we can learn from them. And so when we take time to open up the Bible, God's Word, we, we, we want that same benefit. We don't want people walking away being absolutely puzzled, stupefied, and not growing because they weren't able to comprehend what's there. So we always encourage people to spend time in God's Word, and when they do it, to, to ask and answer some questions. First of all, what does it say? Don't just theorize about the Bible, about what it says. Read it for yourself and see what it says. And then learn through methods and means, whether that be asking and learning from teachers, uh, growing in commentary, study Bibles, or things like that. What does it mean? What was God doing in the time and place when this was given? For the book of Hebrews, it was written somewhere probably in the 60s A.D. within the first and second generation of those who were followers of Jesus. So these were people that were alive when Jesus was alive and, and could tell and witness what was said. But it was also during a time of of great difficulty, more than likely before 70 A.D., because the author does not mention the temple's destruction in Jerusalem, and it was destroyed in 70 A.D. That's a historical fact. And um, if that was the case, if it was written after that, the author could easily say, see, this temple is gone. This is why Jesus is better. But he doesn't go there. He doesn't add, add that fuel to the fire. So the best scholars have it was written within that that time range. But we need to see not only when it was given and, and the purposes for why it was given, because that will tell us what it means. It will also, by learning what it means, and the meaning of God's Word doesn't change, we'll then begin seeing that meaning and seeing the significance and how it applies. See, a lot of people, we want to know how it applies to our daily life, but that application is never going to be different and application is never going to be excluded or, or separated from God's original meaning. Anything else to do that is to twist God's Word. But it will have application that overflows from that meaning. Like, think about a good hot cup of coffee. A good hot cup of coffee, some of you may not be coffee drinkers, but, you know, you get it in that, 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 that uh, mug and it's poured out and it's, it's dark and it's hot and, and all these kind of things. Uh, and, and a good cup of coffee, it's, it's going to be hot or you could put ice in it and it'd be cold. Somewhere in between is just gross. I think the Bible talks about lukewarm stuff. Uh, that's something you don't want. But you know that it's going to be hot and, and, and there's a substance there. And when you drink it, if it's hot, it's going to warm you up. But out of that warmth and that's in that cup of coffee, you're also going to have application. There's going to be some caffeine if it's caffeinated. Uh, I know that some people drink decaf. I have opinions about decaf. I believe there is a time and a place for decaf coffee. The time is never and the place is the garbage. Uh, but that is me. 
But the, the application, the overflow will be that caffeine. It, it begins to take significance. Not only am I drinking a warm drink, it's going to have significance in my life. Maybe a caffeine wakes you up, maybe it settles you down, but it's going to be a part of that. This is just a small metaphor for the greater part of the word. You're going to see the substance of it, but it's going to have significant application out of that substance. But then the big question becomes, will I trust what God is saying? And today as we look at the book of Hebrews, some of the reasons we're doing that is not only to see that God is greater, that Jesus is better, and why we have that reason, that solid foundation for that belief. But it also helps us to decipher in a world of crazy messages that are coming from all different kinds of places and some of them trying to trip up or twist or manipulate God's Word. It's very good for us to see what the Bible says is our hope that is found in Jesus. And what we're going to see about what Jesus does is that He is always good. He is always perfect. He is always mightier. He is always far more superior. He's always right and righteous in all He is and all that He does. It's going to show us that as we look at at how God is greater and has given us Jesus as a picture of who He is. Now, here's the thing. The goal about that that the author of Hebrews is, is moving us towards is when he's giving us this glimpse of Jesus, he's helping us to remove the clutter. One, when we talk about Jesus, we're not talking about some lesser version of God. He's not God light or the regular version and then you got the Lord Father. He's the premium version. That's not what we're saying. He's not a lesser version. He's not the decaf. Okay? He is fully God. And when we're talking about Jesus, we're also not trying to say this is just a better version of man. Like where we're all flawed, he's the perfect one, but he's not God. And the reason we need to say that is because there are so many viewpoints, so many philosophies that are out there that try to say these things. They try to say that, well, he's not God. He, he's just a little lesser. He was supernatural, but he wasn't God, so he doesn't really have authority. Or they'll say, well... He's not God, but He is the best version of man. He was a great teacher, a great prophet, a great uh, philosopher, a great thinker. And He did things right. He was righteous and good. He didn't do bad things. But that's not what the author of Hebrews or the Bible is trying to tell us. The Bible is also not trying to tell us that He's some in-between version of something else. To present the reader with this case, though, that we're not looking at Jesus in one of these type of categories, that when we look at Jesus, we're seeing the Almighty, the exact expression of God, the, the radiance of His glory, the second person of the Trinitarian Godhead, as the Bible clears up. It's going to tell us some things that we must learn or even relearn. It's going to tell us about who Jesus is, what this Jesus has done in His Word and deed, and why this Jesus has significance for all of us. And this is really good for us because I think even in church mode, mission mode, we have a tendency to jump really far ahead at times. And it's not bad for us to do this, but it it does miss a point. We have a tendency to talk about all the work Jesus has done, what Jesus has done for me. And we'll use that in evangelism because we want people to know what Jesus has done for them. And that is a good thing for us to communicate. The problem is, sometimes we say, okay, Jesus has done this, but we miss out on who is Jesus, though. 
I get what Jesus has done. I get He went to the cross. I get He 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 gives you love. He gives you feelings of joy. I get that Jesus has changed your life. That's good in what He's done. But But who is He? And I think that sometimes we get so caught up on what Jesus has done for us and missing out on who Jesus is that when we come in, we kind of like, yeah, Jesus, Kesara, Sarah. He's kind of cool. He's done some pretty good things for me. But He's my buddy. And we miss out on the fact that when we talk about Jesus, we're talking about someone that is huge, someone that is glorious, someone that is grace-giving, someone that has... Whenever we talk about good news, we're not talking about, oh, that's... That really made my day. We're talking about this changed everything in history. Not just my life, but all of history. And so, the author of Hebrews is helping to get the right things right first by putting the first things first. By saying, yes, this is the work of Jesus, but do not miss out on the person of Jesus. Because they are not mutually exclusive. They, they are together. They are intertwined and cannot be separated us this reason this is this solid foundation it gives us a reason to say wow my songs are definitely more boastful not because of pride and ego on my part not because of a preference in where i am but because jesus is powerful and his person who he is was made known to me it fuels our life so the first thing that's highlighted is the mighty name of jesus we see the first element that, that the author goes to say, this is why it's good and it's right and it's righteous and to worship Jesus because of all He is and all He does, because He's right and righteous, is first of all, His mighty name. It says that in verse 4, He became superior to the angels just as the name He inherited is far more excellent than theirs. The first three verses of, the, of, of Hebrews, it's giving us this grand narrative of Scripture. It's like you took all the Bible and squelched it into a few sentences. You see, the grand narrative of of Scripture, if you're looking at the story and saying, just give me the snapshot, is you have creation, you have fall, you have redemption, and you have the promised restoration that will happen. That's the grand narrative in, in four words. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. All the Bible falls into those four categories. All of it pointing to Jesus. And so the first few sentences of Hebrews, it's giving us this grand narrative, but it's also giving us the grand narrator. It's saying this is, when we talk about Jesus, the Creator who was there at creation. Nothing was created without Him. And He sustains it all by His powerful Word. It's giving us the judge over the fall, that because God is righteous and right in all He does, this fall that He proclaims is sinful. He is absolutely righteous in doing it. It's giving us the fact that He is the Redeemer over redemption. That there is no redemption without the Redeemer. And it's giving us that He is the King and the and the Restorer of the complete kingdom, the complete package. At the end of it all, He will be the one that makes it happen. It's so the first four verses are, are giving us this picture. But then it says something very unique. It says that His name is superior to angels and and you may wonder, well, what's up with the angel discussion? I mean, because honestly, the writer of Hebrews is bringing this up, and we may think that just seems very odd. And I want you to know that this is not some random discussion for the, the writer of Hebrews. You see, the writer of Hebrews, living in the first century, 
was coming out of a history and culture that focused a lot on angels. I mean, they thought they were ooh and ah. No, they didn't paint them as little babies with diapers or anything like that at the time. But this is in that, that range of years, in the 400 years between Malachi and Matthew, they call it the intertestamental period. You had this rise of angel theology. It was during that time that the idea of guardian angels and personal angels that are providers for you uh, came up. And, and it was during this time that they thought, you know, if an angel gave you a vision, that that was always the right way. And so angels were celebrated supernatural beings. So I want you to know this discussion isn't random, but I also want you to understand that it is also relevant. Because you may think, well, we don't live in a day and age like that. We don't live in a day and age where people celebrate angels. Oh, to the contrary, my friends. I can tell you two very high-profile named cults. And yes, I will call them cults. Because not only do they manipulate and twist some scripture, they totally warp and go contrary to the gospel that are highly celebrated. And many would say they're just some other form of Christianity. Why would I say that? Because if you're Jehovah's Witness, you do not believe that Jesus is the exact representation, the full expression, the very deity of God. You think He's a little lesser version of God. You think He's a higher version of man. That He's a chief angel. Not the King of Kings. Not the God in the flesh. And so they elevate... Jesus says some highly elevated angels. But you look at here and the case made from the Old Testament is God never, ever in all of the entirety of Scripture named an angel His Son. Never called Him that. Never gave Him that title. They were useful. They were servants, yes, but never given that title. And makes that case. So it's not only relevant in the day and age which Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews give it, it's, it's relevant to us because I would venture to say you probably know someone or know of someone that knows someone that was Jehovah's Witness. You may have gotten that knock on a Saturday morning at 8 a.m. And hey, I want to say, as far as the mission endeavor to go out and knock on doors and to tell people the news and to sit on the street corner and to, to carefully distribute their literature, man, they've got a lot more going on than some churches. But they're pushing something false. That celebrates Jesus as an angel, not as the Son of God. And since He's not the Son of God, He cannot be the Messiah. There's another cult on the other end that even has Jesus in the name of their church. And what they believe is that an angel delivered to them a new gospel. A workspace gospel that holds Three other books up to equal authority to the Bible, but also says that Jesus is not an eternal God. In fact, Jesus is just a baby God. That He's not who He says He is. The Mormon church celebrates that, a, that an angel gave them another gospel. The problem with that, if you read the Bible, the book of Galatians says if anyone brings to you another gospel other than what was brought to you, let that one be accursed. He then he goes on and says, and I'll say it again, even if an angel from heaven presents to you another gospel other than what you have heard, let him be accursed because the message is false. 
You see, this discussion here about Jesus' elevation, why He is better, why His name is far more superior, why He is the Son and not merely just a servant on the par with the, the supernatural angels, is not random for these Hebrews and it's not random for us. It's relevant to them and it's relevant for us. Some of the teachings that we have today that, that permeate are just spins on old religions. Gnosticism was the, the religion of the day in the Hebrews, where God was the ultimate good and nothing in the material world was good, so God could not enter the material world. But there was a way to connect with the spiritual through this new age type of movement, through the stars or through some hidden wisdom. And so the writer focuses on this and gives us a relevant discussion, but he also shows us that this discussion is about the relationship that we have with the supernatural, that God has done something far superior, that He didn't just send an angel to do work for Him. The angels that were obedient to God, they, they would do anything God told them. You want us to go march in, take out an army? Sure. You want us to deliver a people from Pharaoh? Sure. You want us to, to scare the, 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 the bats out of anybody? Sure, we'll do that. But none of them could pay the price for our sin. For that, God took that upon Himself. It shows the relationship we have. And this discussion is about recalibrating who we are and saying, do I place Jesus in the authority and hold that He deserves, that He has, even if I believe it or not, He has it. We need to heed the warning of people that try to mess with the position and the authority and the sufficiency of Jesus. Why do we need to do that? Because the Bible tells us to. Not because some preacher at a Baptist church tells you. Not because mom and dad tell you. The Bible says this. Colossians 2.18, it says, Let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. We see this imagery of Jesus. But some people have questions. says, what do you mean that He became superior to the angels? If He became, does that mean He wasn't already? This is the issue of Jesus being the eternal one, the eternal Son, but also the Messiah Son. That is the eternal Son, He's always been superior. That as the Messiah Son, the one who stepped into heaven, that was made for a time, as we're going to see next week, that He was made for a time a little lower than the angels by being a man, by taking on flesh, by walking this side, by breathing our air, by being surrounded. For a little time, He was made shorter, lower, so that God's grace would be magnified as greater. And that because that He is crowned with glory and honor, forever because he suffered death we'll look at that and see what it means by this becoming as he became the messiah son the one who walked among us so we see the writer of hebrews is saying first of all the reason that it's right and righteous to worship god and that he's right in worship and all he does and says is because first of all he has the very name of it it's it's his title it's in his his dna that's there but we he also elevates the mighty worth of jesus the writer does something very healthy for us, by the way. 
You may wonder what's up with all these little passages, all these little tidbits. They may not be in the same paragraph structure as your Bible has. Sometimes they're shrunken brackets. Sometimes they're put in little blocks. But what the writer does here is really good for us. To emulate and to replicate. He balances the reading of Scripture in the light of the rest of Scripture. In other words, what he does, he doesn't say, well, that's unusual. I'll just try to figure out what that means on my own and make up a meaning if it sounds suitable. What he does is he takes difficult passages, difficult scenarios, difficult questions, and says, this is what the Bible says here, and I'm holding up to what the Bible says here so I can have the clear answer of the total presentation of Scripture. Instead of dwelling on snapshots and little tidbit scriptures that are pulled apart by themselves, he's looking at it as the whole. And so here he balances this. And these passages, they come from the three major divisions of the Old Testament. You have uh, quotes from Psalms. That's the writings and wisdom books. You have quotes from Second Samuel. That's the prophet and history books. You have quotes from Deuteronomy. That's the law. The, the law, the prophets, and the writings, the wisdom, are the three major Scripture sections of the Old Testament. And so as the writer says, I've got to have what the Old Testament says to talk to people who base their faith on the Old Testament. That's what he does. He goes to it. And he says, this is the presentation. If you're, if you're having these questions, this is how the Bible in its totality shows the answer and shows the worth found in angels. I mean, found in Jesus. Sorry. I was moving ahead to my next point. Now, you may be wondering, so what is the difference? What is the difference between Jesus as the Son and angels? Well, I mean, some of us are puzzled by angels to begin with. I mean, we've heard about them. We think about them maybe every now and then. We celebrate them mostly around Christmas. Every now and then around Easter. We celebrate them at Christmas because they're beautiful decorations and those kind of things. We've got the trumpets and we think about the big choir in the heavens proclaiming peace on earth, goodwill towards men upon whose God favored rest. We think about that. But then we also think about the angels at the resurrection, those that were there at the tomb. So sometimes we need to understand, what is it that angels, what are their role, so we can see the distinctive greaterness of Jesus? Well, angels are spirit beings that are capable of appearing in human form. This is what Hebrews 13.2 tells us. It says that they are mesmerizing whenever they appeared at the resurrection of Jesus in Matthew 28. It says they had laundry that looked like they were clothed in lightning. It was that bright and dazzling. It says that they are highly intelligent and have emotions. How do I know that they have emotions? It says because they rejoice. Angels rejoice when a sinner finds salvation. That's what Luke 15 tells says. There's great joy in the presence of God's angels over when one sinner repents. They also think through and share thoughts. Angels are created beings. They haven't always been, but they were created by God. The Bible tells us that everything that is not God, was created by God. Only God is the one who has always existed, the one who is all, will always exist. So angels are created beings, and they're created for the very purposes and glory of God. The Bible tells us that angels are not beings that marry, and apparently are not able to procreate. It says that whenever we die, and we go to be in the resurrection, that we're going to be like angels because we won't marry, or be given in marriage. That means we won't be procreating. That we'll be like them in that manner. 
Doesn't mean we get wings. Doesn't mean we get harps. Doesn't mean we become someone's guardian and follow them around. It's a little creepy, I'm just being honest. Well, you know, my grandpa died, now he's my stalker. You know? <laughs> and honestly, I mean, I'm not trying to be mean or cruel. The Bible doesn't give us that picture. It doesn't give us that, that, that direction of what happens after death. The Bible says there are three angels that are given names that we know of. Um, not, not, not that other ones don't have names, but we know of five passages in the Bible that speak of, a, of an angel named Michael, four passages in the Bible that speak of an angel named Gabriel, one passage in the Bible that speaks of an angel named Lucifer as far as by naming him. And we see that the angels serve God in his bidding. They're spectators and participants in God's mighty works. According to Scripture, we see that it was angels that served Jesus in the midst of his serving, suffering. They are placed by God to watch over the church, according to Revelation. They are used at God at times to answer the prayers of his people, according to the book of Daniel. They are called in delivering from dangers, according to the Paul, Pauline letters. They are presented to give us encouragement in a time of need. And they are also revealed judgment and inflict punishment at times in the Bible, according to the book of Genesis, when you see the passage about Lot being delivered out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what we see here is the author uses this point in, in talking about angels and what they knew about angels and say, look, there is a distinctive difference between these created beings in the service of God and the eternal one who is the Son of God. There is a distinctive difference and there is no comparison. He uses this rhetorical argument that God never said this. God never called them this. God never charged them with this. And yet Jesus is spoken of and promised and given this mighty worth, this mighty title. He is the one that has all in His hands. You see, Jesus is the one who is preeminent, superior over all. He is the one who is over all creation. And that everything falls in His hands. That's why it says that at the very end, in the book of Revelation, it talks about this, this entire restoration that will be echoed throughout the heavens one day. And you know who they're going to be celebrating? They're not going to be applauding and saying, hey, good job, buddy. Glad you did your part. You'll get, you'll get some praise. You'll get some encouragement. Yeah. But the eternal focus, the eternal fixture of heaven is given to us in this glimpse of, of Revelation chapter 5. It says, then I looked... And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also the living creatures and of the elders. And their number was countless, thousands plus thousands of thousands. And they said in a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say, blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. See, in the internal scope of things, everything falls down at Jesus. They look at Him in all His glory and they understand we are not Him. We are not that person. We have never accomplished that work. And so He is worthy of all praise. He is not like us. Think about it this way. How many of you, if it's like someone that, you know, that's just another so-and-so, another Joe, another average person, 
We're like, okay, they do something cool, but there comes a moment where, all right, you're just boosting their ego now. I mean, they're really not worth all that. Yeah, I want to give them attaboy, but there's a limitation to that. Because we know that they deal with the same struggles we do. They're, they're on the same playing field that we are. They're just somebody else. Like me. And so we have a limitation, but that's not the way it is with Jesus. Even the angels look at Jesus and say, He is not like us. And He is worthy of all praise. The writer highlights the, the mighty name of Jesus. It highlights the mighty worth of Jesus. And it highlights the mighty throne of Jesus by giving us pictures of His ultimate sovereignty. It says that Jesus holds this throne in verse 8. To the Son, your throne, O God, o God, is forever and ever. This is God saying to God. To His Son, your throne is forever. So it's giving us God's ultimate sovereignty that even God Himself says this throne is complete. This rule is total. It gives us the picture of His identity because God Himself calls His Son, O God. It's there. His identity, His identified divinity is there in verse 8. His eternal existency. I know existency is not really a word, but I had to end thing with, with wise and that so it kind of happened that way. It says it's forever and ever. There's never a time that God has not been and there's never going to be a time that God will not be. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The one who was, the one who is, the one who is to come. He is always eternal. It shows His complete authority. That it says that in His hand, He rules with a scepter. A scepter that gives dominion over his, uh, his kingdom. That this rule is not just some figurehead seat. I got to serve a couple years ago as the president of the Southern Baptist Convention of Michigan. It's cool, cool title, that kind of thing. But I will be the first to admit that it's mostly a figurehead title. You're there to be a representative, you're there to speak, but you really don't have any ruling power. It isn't said, thus saith the Jerome, and things happen. That's not the way it goes. That is a figurehead position with very, very limited authority. But with Jesus, the throne is one that is not figurehead. It is one of complete authority. He rules, and what He says will not be stopped, will not be thwarted because what He does is always right. It is always righteous and it is always right for us to praise Him for His authority. We see His amazing vibrancy, that there's something exceedingly good and glorious and joy-filling about Jesus. That He loves righteousness and He hates lawlessness. That means He is completely God, completely good. But there's also something. God doesn't sit there with a persimmon face. God doesn't sit there with a prune lips. God doesn't sit there with His arms crossed mad at the world. It says that in Jesus, there is an oil of gladness far beyond any companions. So think about this in heaven. I, I sometimes love those pictures of seeing the smiling Jesus now. Not the ones that are just kind of clip-hearted, but the smiling Jesus. Because it is good for us to know our God rejoices. That He loves, He has kindness, there is joy with Jesus. He didn't say, well, you need joy, I don't like it, but you can have it. No, He says, I have joy, and, and because I have joy, I want to gift it to you. 
My joy is far greater than any. So when you think upon the Lord, don't think of, of sourpuss Jesus. Don't think of weak in a bathrobe Jesus. Don't think of limited power Jesus. Think of the one who is vibrant and good and kind and victorious. The one who has excellent creativity according to verse 10. That in the beginning it was Him that established the earth and the heavens. That the works of His hands by His voice it happened. That He is the one that has directed victory. That one day everything else will perish, but He and He roll, will roll it up like a cloth. It, it'll be like nothing to Him. I mean, think about it. I know it takes me a long while to fold laundry and put it up. But really, there's not a lot of activity that goes along with that. I mean, it doesn't really extrude a lot of energy. It's like, alright, here's a towel. Man, this is a struggle. Ugh, that's not what it's like. We may feel like that mentally, but it doesn't take a lot of work. This is the comparison that, that, that the Bible tells about God's victory. That one day everything's going to perish and it's going to be like Him throwing a towel in a bag. That's as, that's as much limited as it will take in His strength for to bring that victory. That's some power there, guys. That's some rule. That's some awesome trust that we can have that God has a directed victory and then also that with Him is someone who is unshakable. That He is the same and His years will never end. That when we think about Jesus, we're thinking about someone who has indescribable immutability. That He never changes. He will never be shaken. Which leads us to looking at the mighty reign of Jesus. The author says, Now to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool? That God never said that about anyone but His Son. And it shows God's trust in the reign of His Son to be the sovereign. That He has sovereignty over all. I know I've said that word twice in the same sermon, and that's like a rule that you're not supposed to break. But that God has complete rule. And because God has sovereignty, there are those that are His subjects those that are angelic in the supernatural dominion, and those that are earthly. But we also see that we need to be careful and understand this dire warning that if we lessen who Jesus is and we do not trust and become part of His kingdom, one day we're going to be listed among the enemies that will be merely His footstool. There's a sentence that comes from Jesus to those who do not trust Jesus. They do not accept, accept and receive the blessed grace gift offering that He gives them. But until that day, until that day, God is still sending out His people to be ministering spirits, to be used of His service. Why do we take time to look at this Jesus? Because He's right and righteous in all He does. And if He's right and righteous in all He does, then our activity of worship, our activity of mission, our activity of evangelism, discipleship, service, it is very right that we continue on with a steady hope, not just because we're trying to be good enough and, and get people to like us, but because Jesus is worth it. If Jesus is right and righteous in all He is, then His name is good. We should be the first and foremost to praise His mighty name. We should say it is worth every, every ounce of our being to follow Him. We should say that God's rule reigns over all. And even if it means I have to be uncomfortable and change what I'm doing in order to follow His throne and His reign, hallelujah, help me do it. And because God is good in all He does, 
It points us back to this is why the gospel is such astoundingly great news. That this is not just mere comparison of apples and apples to some other philosophy or some other worldview on par with them. No, it's exceedingly more that there is a God who is holy that sees the offense of sin and instead of sending someone else to it, He says, I will be the substitute. The complete total one for them. This is why the Gospel is so good. That God did that and then He placed it before us and says, I am not forcing this upon you, but I am greatly encouraging you and letting you know this is the default direction you're going, but this is what I'm doing to provide salvation. Trust in Me. This is why the eternal hope is so good. It's not that we're so looking forward to a place. The place is going to be awesome. But the greatest prize is not the place. The greatest prize is the person. That we get to be there with Jesus and say, with all those angels, the thousands upon thousands, yes, worthy are you. It's why this life is to be transformed because Jesus is worth it. He is mightier than we could ever compare to anyone else. So the life of the disciple needs to say, God, let my life in word and deed declare the mightiness of who you are and the mightiness of what you've done because it is right to do so. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I just ask that during this time as we come to a close, that you would help us to honor you, to give you the might that you are worth following, the the, the praise that you are worth receiving. I don't know what you want to do in this moment, Lord, but I pray that we respond to your move in an obedient way because we're drawn by your grace, which is so good. In Jesus' name, amen. This time the music is going to play. I'm going to ask you to keep your heads bowed, your eyes closed. And uh, we want to offer this time of response. I don't know what type of business that you might need to do with God in this moment. Maybe you need to come to Him for comfort. Maybe you need to celebrate and and hand over your victories to Him and say, God, thank You for these blessings and just share a grateful heart. But maybe your next step is something, I don't want to say far more serious, but far essential, far more essential. Maybe today you're coming and, and you are without peace from God. And you're trying to figure out, how do I get that? I'll tell you, there's only a way to get peace with God. It's the peace that comes from God. There's nothing on our part that could ever earn it, ever achieve it, ever get it as payment for what we do. There's no quest that we could make. But God says, I've made it available for you already. And I extend it to you through my son. But it comes first through an act of admitting your need for it. Understanding that A lost person needs to be found. A a dead person needs to be brought to life. A drowning person needs to be rescued. And they're crying out for help. So we in our sin says, God, that's who I am. You've made that known to me. I admit I need Your grace. It's by believing that that Jesus is that way of salvation. that, That there is no other way. That's why the Bible makes so much about Him being far more superior. All these other ways are shifting sands, but His way is the way the truth, and the life. And it comes from confessing. That it's not only a belief and an acknowledgement in your heart and your mind, it, it's a confession with your lips and your life that Jesus is Lord. That 
He must save and I will trust in Him. So today if that's you, you're here and, and you need that peace with God from that first initial step with Him. We would love for you, we would love to help you take that next step. Perhaps there's something else that you need to do to be obedient to the Lord. And that's between you and Jesus. But I just want you to know if there's any way we can help you in that next step. We want to be a church that does that. So I'm going to be here at the front. And if you have questions, need looking for answers, need someone to pray for, pray with you. I'm going to be here.